Welcome to the Battlefield Baptist Church Podcast. We are so glad you joined us and pray that this message is a blessing to you today. This week, Pastor continued his sermon series with Be Consistent. Join us in the book of Hebrews. I think it's important as we begin uh, the topic this morning, before I reveal really what I want to talk to you about this morning, it's incredibly important how we live our lives. I just wanted to check and make sure everybody was out here. It's incredibly important how we live our lives. Because people are watching me, they're watching you, and they're making a determination, they're making a decision on God based on what they see in you and in me. And I pray that they're seeing something that draws them to the foot of the cross, where they might find forgiveness of sin and a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you think about it, have you ever asked yourself this question, who is God for most people? Have you ever ever stopped to think about that as you're in the marketplace or you're at work and whatnot? Who is God for most people when it comes down to it? Well, to some, God is the creator of the universe, right? And some of us, I I hope all of us would agree that God is the creator of the universe, but for some, he's the creator, but their their idea of him being creator limits them in the fact that they think, oh, well, God may be the creator, but he is still very, very far away from us. And as the creator of the universe, he's out in this this, uh, realm of outer space, and he's really not concerned with my life today. He's not concerned with what I think, what I say, or what I do. Therefore, that group who who kind of uh, attributes their thought or their their processes in that uh, area, they basically live their life according to their own doctrine, according to their own philosophy. And so there's a problem there where you might see God as creator, but you don't see him as ruler and reigner of your life. And so you start to live and you go through living your life in a way uh, that is according to your own thoughts and ways. And really, the only time I ever see that group living for God is when they're, and I was telling Krista this the other day, when they're way behind or they're in a bind. You ever run across that person who's in a bind and they say, hey God, I need you now. I need you to work in my life now. But I'm here to tell you, he was still God yesterday. And so we have to be careful from, uh, from this attitude that says, yes, God, I believe you're creator, but you're so far away. How could you ever care about me? And then there's some people who, who uh, think that God is just this, this, this being that's supposed to be um, um, feared in some way, in some way that God is this judge that hovers over us and he's just watching us and he's waiting for you and I to fail so that he can punish us. There's people who see God as this great and almighty judge and certainly he is judge, but he's so much, much more. Most of those people live their lives out of a sense of fear, uh, a scaredness, not a, not a reverence for God, but in a sense of fear. And then there's a, selective, uh, there's a select group of people who say, well, God may be uh, God, he may exist or he may not exist, I'm not really sure. But then again, even if he does exist, if he does, then I could never really hope to have a real relationship with that kind of God because He's so much greater than me, why would he want to have a relationship with me? And so when we start asking ourselves, what do other people consider God to be? It's really important for us who believe that he is the savior of the world. 
how we live. You see, as believers, we can live the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John chapter 10. We can live the abundant life because we know from scriptures that God can be known, that God can be approached. We also believe from scriptures, if you're walking by faith, that we can have fellowship not only with God, but we can commune with God. We can have this, this back and forth relationship where he is keenly aware of our thoughts and our intents. We can walk and talk if you please, with our Heavenly Father each and every day. And all these things are great. But guys, if you and I are going to have an impact on this world, if you're going to reach your classmates with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're going to go into the marketplace, mom and dad, and we're going to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're going to have an impact in your family's life, if, if, if God is going to work in and through you to reach not only your family, but your community, this nation, and ultimately the world, then we're going to have to live our lives in a way that God would desire to use them. He does not take pleasure in using unclean vessels. He does not get joy out of us living our lives according to our own thoughts, our own ways, living sinful lives, and then wondering why God doesn't bless us, why he doesn't work in and through us, why he doesn't strengthen us. We talked about being blessed, being strong, and today I want to talk to you about being consistent. The title today is Be Consistent, because I believe that God wants to use us, and if we'll walk in, in our lives in a way that brings him honor and glory, that consistency is something that he gets great pleasure out of and it's something that he will use. Now that being said, I'm not sure being a spiritual know-it-all is the answer. There's a lot of people you say, be consistent, and they're like, okay, well I'll go around and I'll pontificate everything I know from God's word to everyone that I meet. I'm not sure that's the key, but I'll say this, I'm not sure that being a hypocrite's the key either. To say one thing and then do another thing. Because people are going to look at that. They're going to say, I don't want what you have. Because I don't see you living it out. And so we have to be careful not to be the spiritual know-it-all. But we also have to be careful not to be a, uh, a spiritual hypocrite. I honestly believe, aside from uh, speaking and sharing the truth of God's word in love. By the way, that's what Ephesians 4.15 tells us. Speak the truth in love. Aside from speaking the truth in love that we have to walk in consistency. And I put down here, and in all actuality, uh, this idea, be consistent. When we are consistent, that's where the living God becomes a living reality in our lives. So my question is, are you consistent this morning? Are you living a life of consistency? Is the living God, has He become a living reality in your life and if he's become a living reality in your life, he's going to become a living reality in the life of your family. He's going to become a living reality in the life of your workplace. He's going to become a living reality in our church and in our community and in this nation and in the world. And you say, man, you've got some grander ideas of what God can do. Well, my Bible says that his disciples turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I believe that these things are possible, but we must we must be consistent. If you're a note taker this morning, I want to give you a few simple thoughts. First of all, I want you to note this. Be consistent in drawing closer to God. We need to be consistent in how we draw closer to God each and every day. Notice in Hebrews chapter 10, 
verse number 19 and following. What's interesting to note about this passage that Travis read is verse number 19 through verse number 22 is one sentence. Verse number 23 to 25 is one sentence. There are two sentences in, these, uh, in this passage that we need to pay particular attention to. And you have to understand that they are separate thoughts that connect together as we dissect this passage of Scripture. Look at verse number 19. The Bible says, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way." How interesting that the word way there means what? If you've been here the past two weeks, it means the word road. Remember, "...blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful." Psalm 1.1, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The idea of being blessed, we walk on the road that is according to God's road, not our road. And so this passage here speaks of a new and a living way, a new road that we walk on. Notice it says, "...which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh." And having a high priest over the house of God, notice verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now what this is now look at the passage. What it's saying is because Jesus has provided this new and living way, this new and living road, you and I have the ability, but we also have a responsibility to boldly enter into God's presence. And you know what? We can enter his presence boldly. We can enter it freely, openly. And the in the allusion here where it says, notice these words, in full assurance the idea is that we can enter into the presence of God with confidence. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. That the creator of the universe would desire me to openly and freely, because of what Jesus has done, that I have the ability, I have the privilege, I have the responsibility to openly and freely enter into his presence. How amazing is that? Notice a couple of the phrases here in verse 22. Notice that phrase, draw near. It simply means that you and I are to approach, we're to come near, we're to worship. And the implication here is that in order for you and I to draw near to God, you and I are going to have to make a conscious decision to approach Him and worship Him. Now you say, I know where this is going. You say, you're already looking at verse 25. You guys, I know where He's going with this. Well, that's going to be at the end of the message. But the reality is, if I'm going to openly, freely, and with confidence come into his presence in full assurance, I have to do so out of a conscious decision that I make. I'm going to have to make the decision every morning to draw close to God. Or I make the decision that on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I'm not going to approach the throne of God. I'm not going to approach Him. I'm going to live according to my ways. I'm going to live according to my wisdom. See, there's a difference. We either walk on His new and living way, or we walk according to the old way that governed us before we knew Jesus. And so it's pretty important. Notice the second phrase in verse 22. Take note of the words there where it says true heart. It says draw near with a true heart, which means a heart that is genuine, a heart that is sincere, a heart that is honest, a heart that is without hypocrisy. That's essentially what it means. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance or confidence in faith, 
with a heart that is without hypocrisy. And we'll see this in other places of Scripture. But when we put this all together, all this information together, what we see here in these few short verses is that because of the work that Jesus Christ accomplished through His death, through His burial, and His resurrection, that as believers, you and I, we could and we should freely, openly, and with confidence approach the throne of God with an honest heart, a genuine heart, and with a heart that is sincere and without hypocrisy. The problem, though, and the reason the writer of Hebrews writes this, the problem is that we are wrapped up so many times, and I'm including myself in this. We get wrapped up in the affairs of this world, in the affairs of this life, the affairs of our family, the affairs of our jobs, the affairs of whatever, just fill in the blank. We get so wrapped up in this world that if we're not careful, we actually forget what Jesus did when he tore down the veil. And what we do is we start living like that group of people that I mentioned at the beginning. The people that say, yes, he's the creator of the universe, but he's so far off. How could he ever be concerned with me? I mean, I'm just little old me, myself, and I. God can't be really concerned with me. I mean, is he really, is he really concerned with my decisions today? Or does he just want my whole life to, my overarching, my whole life to bring him honor and glory? And so if I mess up today, it's okay because I got a chance tomorrow. Well, that's great. That's his grace and his mercy activated in our lives. But he wants us to draw near each and every day. In Hebrews chapter 4, notice what the Bible says here in verse 15 and 16. It says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace, it's speaking of mercy and grace, in to help in time of need. Now remember, back when we were doing our family series, and I was talking to you about forgiveness. We reminded ourselves of these two things. This idea of God's grace. The idea that God's grace gives you and I what we don't deserve. But God's mercy doesn't give me what I do deserve. I'm thankful for both. We sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But I'm thankful for God's mercy that doesn't give me what I do deserve. Because if God gave us what we do deserve today, we would all be most miserable. We would be in what, they, what, they, what many have referred to in past as a hurt locker. We would be in a hurt locker of a situation if it weren't for God's mercy and His grace. Oh yes, friends, the living God becomes a living reality in my life and in your life when we are consistently drawing close to the Lord. In fact, you know the passage from James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, verse number 8, the Bible says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I was looking at some of the commentaries uh, when it comes to this passage in James, and, 
And if you remember in James chapter 4, verse 6, it's talking a lot about the, the proud and the fact that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then it goes on and tells us to draw close to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you in verse number 7. And then you get to verse number 8 where it says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. I was reading some of the commentaries and Albert Barnes says this. He says, we cannot come literally any nearer to God than we always are for he is always round about us. But we can come nearer to God in a spiritual sense. I was reading on, Adam Clark said this. He says, approach him in the name of Jesus by faith and prayer and he will draw nigh to you. He will meet you at your coming. You see, for when a soul sets out to seek God, God sets out to meet that soul. So that while we were drawing near to him, he is drawing near to us. Oh, it's so incredibly important that we draw near to God in our lives. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 73. I want you to see something. The Psalms are incredible uh, place where you can get encouragement. If you are here today and you need to be encouraged, I want to encourage you to check out the Psalms. The Psalms can be very, very encouraging for us. And in Psalm 73, this is a Psalm of Asaph, and, and I want you to see what's going on. And he's, this psalmist is concerned about the prosperity of the wicked, the prosperity of the ungodly. And if we're not careful, what can do our damage in our lives, what can keep us from drawing close to God is to look around and see the ungodly and to see the wicked uh, pair, uh, prospering. And so notice what uh, the psalmist says here, and we're going to work our way. Notice verses 1 through 3. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as of our clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, if we were to read on, if you go all the way down through verse number 9, he continues to speak about the prosperity of the ungodly. But notice down in verse number 10, the psalmist begins to talk about um, how God's people, what happens is we get um, uh, confounded with doubt. We start wondering, God, are you really in control? We start uh, doubting his knowledge. We start doubting his care of us as believers. We say, hey, the wicked are prospering. God, do you even care about me? I'm trying to live for you. I draw nigh to you each and every day, and I'm not prospering. Guys, let me just say this. I said it in our Sunday school hour when I was talking about living a life of faith. Just because we look around and we see somebody prospering financially, that does not mean that they are living a life of spiritual uh, uh, greatness to God. Sometimes the wicked, sometimes the ungodly prosper financially. And that's the greatest hindrance I see to people. People look around and they say, oh my gosh, this person's got it all. They got a big house, they got the cars, they got the boats, they got the vacation home. They're, they're vacationing six weeks out of the year and they're doing this and they're doing that. And then what we do is we start trying to live our life according to them. Instead of drawing nigh to God. And so the psalmist had this problem. See, he's confounded with doubts. He's confounded with understanding and care. And notice what verse 16 and 17 says. Notice the psalmist says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. <laughs> he says, I'm trying to figure all this out. And it's so painful to me. Notice what he says. Until 
It was painful for him until I went into the sanctuary of God. He says, then I understood, I understood therein. You see, the psalmist says, it wasn't until I went to God's house. It wasn't until I went to God's house and I heard God's word, I heard it explained, I heard it taught, I heard it preached, that I was reminded that the sin, uh, the season of sin is only for a little while. Verse number 18, keep on reading. It says, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, and thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors? Now drop down to verse 22. And he continues on. He's ramping up a, a great finale for us in this psalm. He says, So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. Notice the psalmist's desire and his love for God. And then he says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish, but thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But notice what he says in verse 28, But it is good for me to draw near to God. All of those things are going on. He said, but it is good for me to draw near to God. But notice in your text, I always say this, what is that little thing right after God? It's a colon. It means there's another thought coming after it. So when I see a colon in Scripture, and I've said this many times, it doesn't always work out. So I know somebody's going to find it, say, hey, pastor, it didn't work out this way. I found a colon in Scripture, and it doesn't work. But essentially, you can ask the question, Why? Notice what the psalmist says, but it is good for me to draw near to God. So insert the question, why? And why does the psalmist say it's good for him to draw near to God? He says, because I put my trust in the Lord. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. He says, listen, I'm going to draw near. My action is going to be based on knowledge. And for you and I, I'm encouraging you today to be consistent and the first thing I said was to be consistent in drawing closer to God. Your action based on knowledge. Knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Knowledge that he's the one that tore down the veil. Knowledge that he's the one that allows us to enter into the throne of God's presence where we might find mercy and grace in our time and our help in a time of need. This is who he is. And so based on knowledge, we ought to be drawing closer to God. We ought to be drawing closer in prayer, in worship, and through His Word, our life and our lives. When we do this, our life and our lives are going to have an impact. I can tell you, they're going to have an impact in your family, mom and dad. When you draw near to God, your kids, they're not fooled. They're not fooled. If there's hypocrisy in the home, they'll see it. And so it's incredibly important for us dads to stand up. And to draw near to God because our kids are watching. And the last thing I want to do is live a life of hypocrisy. And then my boys walk out of the home and say, my dad was a big fraud. He told us to live for Christ. He told us to walk with God. And he didn't even do it himself. It's so incredibly important to be consistent. Number two, we need to be consistent in our journey of faith. 
We need to be consistent in this journey that we're on. Notice verse 23. The Bible says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And I like the end of the verse because it says, for he is faithful that promised. You see, a person that's made a true profession of faith in Jesus believes that Jesus is not only his Savior from sin and death, but Jesus is his Lord. See, there's a difference. A lot of people like Jesus the Savior, but they're not too fond of Jesus the Lord. I'll take by your silence that you agree. We're fond of Jesus the Savior, the one who died on the cross, the one who was buried, the one who arose victoriously three days later, conquered hell, death, and the grave, the one who gives us the ability to have everlasting life. We're fond of that Jesus the Savior. It's when we come to the topic of Jesus as the Lord of our lives that we're not too keen. You see, because for him to be the Lord of our lives, that means that we must be under his hand. Many of you were in that uh, uh, class a few weeks ago on momentum. I, I taught for Larry. He was down at kids camp. And the idea of the meek and the Latin word for meekness being mansutus. And the idea of uh, being under God's hand. The idea that our will is subservient to his. We come under his hand and allow him to lead our lives. Listen, in our journey of faith, it's so important that we be consistent because the world is watching. They're watching to see if you and I are going to really walk our talk. That phrase, hold fast, actually means that there's a real present threat and danger. Why would the writer of Hebrews say, hold fast? Notice he says it, hold fast. The profession of our faith without wavering. See, there's a danger. He knew there was a danger because people in his time had the danger. They were facing it. They were, being, uh, they were turning their back and they were going back and living according to their own thoughts and their own ways. And the point is that just as these Christians of this time, when Hebrews was written, were under attacks, you and I, if you're not under attack now, you will be. Maybe you're just coming out of an attack. But I can assure you that each and every one of us will be attacked and I know, guys, because I'm covered with the same flesh that you are, I know it's much easier just to blend in. It's easier to blend in whether we're at work or whether we're at play. It's easier to say and do nothing when confronted with sinfulness, when our friends are steeped in sin and we don't do anything and we don't say anything. Listen, that has a problem with our testimony. If, if my brother is sinning and I don't step out and say, bro, man, you need to change what you're doing, I'm condoning it. I'm actually saying, oh, it's no big deal, it's okay. Go ahead and live according to your own thoughts. It's easy to blend, it's easy to say nothing and do nothing. And it's also actually easier just to walk away rather than witness, isn't it? Even when we sense the Holy Spirit leading, saying, man, talk to that person. Tell that person about Jesus. Tell that person you're going to pray for him. Tell that person that you're available to, to do whatever, to be a blessing. Reach out to that person, and then what we do is we say, no, God, no, God, I, I don't have time right now. And maybe, maybe you don't even say you don't have time, but because of fear, because uh, of being scared to step out by faith, we say, I'm just not going to say anything. And then maybe this feeling will pass. 
Listen, it's much easier to do these things. However, we cannot allow the voices of this world to draw us away from God. We cannot allow ourselves to listen to the words of doubt and the words of false teaching. And I know how ever easy it is. We cannot allow the circumstances, the trials, and the temptations of our faith to keep us from living out this journey of faith that we are on in a way that brings God honor and glory. I said it in our Sunday school hour. The Bible says without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. We cannot live our lives according to your abilities. By the way, who gave you your abilities? We cannot live our lives according to to some set of rules that you've set up and established and think that God is going to be honored. Without faith, it's not pleasing to God. The end of verse 23 speaks of His faithfulness to us. I want to encourage you to be faithful to Him. Our God keeps His word. Verse 23 says, For He is faithful that promised in Christ we have an incredible gift, we have an incredible privilege privilege, excuse me, of living forever. Knowing, knowing that should drive how we live. Knowing that we can live forever with Jesus Christ throughout all eternity ought to actually drive and dictate how we live. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 to those saints in Galatia, he said, stand fast, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Speaking of that yoke of bondage, the former sinfulness that they were living according to, he says, listen, stand fast in the liberty that you now have in Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. In Hebrews chapter 4, I read verses 15 and 16, but in verse 14, he says, seeing then... And that that phrase, seeing then, essentially means because. Because that we have a great high priest that is passed in the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, he says, let us hold fast our profession. Our journey of faith will no doubt, will no doubt, go through some rough terrain and rough waters. Some of you are there right now. I can't even imagine. We were talking about Abraham this morning. Can you imagine God promised Abraham at 75 he was going to make of him a great nation? And then at 86 he reconfirms it. 11 years later, Abraham's like, when are you going to fulfill your promise, God? I'm still trying to remain faithful. And then 13 years later, 24 years later, he's 99 years of age. And he drops in front of God. And God says, oh, by the way, that covenant that I made with you, I'm still going to do it. I wonder how our journey of faith would look if we were waiting 24 years for something. We've had people that have been on our prayer list for salvation for years and years and years. Oh, be not weary in well-doing. Be not weary to pray for your loved ones. Listen, sometimes you think, well, God must not be listening because he doesn't answer. Oh, he's listening. He's listening. He wants us to be faithful in our journey of faith. Listen, 
Our journey of faith may take us over those rough terrain and rough waters at times, but we can, assure, we can be assured of our destination with Jesus. I like what 1 Peter says. It talks about the fact that you and I, we have a lively or a living hope. In 1 Peter 1, verse number 3, it says we have a lively hope that we can hold on to. And so I encourage you to hold on to your faith. Hold on to the truth of God's word. It's like that old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on what? Jesus' name. Our journey of faith is pretty important when it comes to impacting others. And so I ask you, what are you consistently leaning on in this life? Because when we lean on Jesus, the living God becomes a living reality in and through our lives. And so we need to draw close to God. We need to live and, and go through this journey of faith in a way that is consistent, a way that the world looks at us and will want what we have, not, a, not in a way that the world will look and say, well, I don't want any part of that. And then I think we need to be consistent in our encouragement of others. Here's an area where I feel like we're, we need some help. And so you know what the Bible says. It says that if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And he'll give it to you. But I really believe that not just Battlefield, Baptist Church. I'm not speaking uh, particularly to this congregation. I'm speaking to the church in general. Those that have called out upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Those that are supposed to encourage one another. I think we need to do a better job. I think we need to be consistent in our encouragement of others. Notice what verse 24 says. It says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The word consider here means that you and I are to give, a, give attention or continuous care to something. And so, in my pea-sized little brain, I cannot help but to think what our church, what our community, what our country, what this world would be like if we took just this one little passage and made it an important part of our lives. Notice it says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Listen, if this was the norm for believers, I imagine things would look a lot differently. Think about it just for a second. What if we were more considerate to one another? Could we do that? I think we could. What if we were more concerned for one another? Could we do that? I bet we could. What if we were committed to meeting each other's needs? And I'm not talking about in a socialistic way. I'm talking in a spiritual way. When we see our brother hurting, when we see our brother that, is, that has been beaten down by the world, we come alongside and try to encourage that brother. I was talking to Joe and some others Wednesday night after our Bible study groups. And I want to encourage you, man, make time for the Lord throughout the week. Not just on Sunday morning, but that's a personal decision all of us have to make. I get it. I understand it. And uh, we were talking, and I said, you know, I said, what's incredible to me is our lack of uh, restoring one another. The idea that if, brethren, if one of you be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore one another in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. And I think what we've done, we've done ourselves a disservice because at invitation time, when I know that there's families that are hurting in the church, and I know that there's people who are asking God to provide for them in a miraculous way, whether it be a job, whether it be financially, whether it be physically, and I don't see anybody coming to pray with anybody. 
What would their church look like if somebody walked down and said, Chuck, will you just come and pray with me? Chuck, I need some encouragement. Would you pray with me? Or if, if Lee, would you just pray with me? I need, I need some encouragement today. Does anybody in this room need encouragement? I'll be honest, I'm going to raise two hands. We need to encourage one another. And the Bible tells us that it's a duty that we do it. It's something that we should do. Philippians 2, verse number 4 says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And in Hebrews chapter 3, and, and for time's sake, I'm only going to read one verse, but I want you to go back and read Hebrews chapter 3. And really, when you get down to verse 6, and it's, it's talking about perseverance of the saints and everything, but when you get to verse number 13, it, the Bible says, But exhort one another daily. That word exhort means to call near, to invoke, to beseech, or to comfort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness. And that word deceitfulness means delusion, the delusion of sin. You see, sometimes we, we trick our minds into thinking that we're going to be okay. We're okay. I got it covered. I'll just live it live it out this way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this. I can do it. I don't need anybody's help. You're fooling yourself. That's why Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. It's his church. And the reason he established his church, the reason he died for the church, is so that we would come together as a called out assembly of baptized believers to encourage one another, to provoke one another unto love and to good works. He goes on, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Listen, our encouragement of one another helps us to persevere. You say, how do I persevere? How do I draw close to God? How do I live in this journey of faith? How we do is we encourage one another. See, when you're here, it encourages me. When I'm here, hopefully it encourages you. And we get encouraged to walk this journey together. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22 and 23, the Bible says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure and that word pure means clean. A pure heart fervently. That idea of a pure heart fervently means that you, you do it without ceasing. That it never stops. It's an intent desire. It's an intent action. Verse 23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Guys, we need, yes, yes, we need to be consistent in our encouragement of, of others. And you say... Well, can it really be that simple? Is that it? Is that all? Well, notice what verse 25, listen, you can be an encouragement to people in many ways. But one of the greatest ways the Bible says we can be an encouragement to one another is found in the continuation of this thought in verse 25. Notice what verse 25 says. It says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Listen, number four, I want to encourage you, be consistent in your corporate worship. You say, there it is. That's what I've been waiting 25 minutes for. I wish you'd have told me 25 minutes ago I could have been down to the buffet by now. Well, I'm glad to see you're awake. By the way, the last time I checked, I didn't write this. 
And it was in the Bible before I ever became pastor. And it'll be in the Bible when I cease to be pastor. So if you're angry at what the Bible says, just please be angry with the Bible, not with me, because I didn't write it. I want to encourage you to be consistent in your corporate worship. You see, our Lord established His church, and He did so for a reason. As believers, we're to worship together. We're to pray together. We're to study God's Word together. We're to do ministry together. We're to serve one another. Listen, when somebody has a baby, we ought to be serving one another. We've not hit the mark on everybody's baby, but we sure try to do it. When somebody's in the hospital, we ought to go to the hospital and pray with them. And we ought to make a casserole for Jesus and take it to him because the guy certainly can't do anything other than put a microwave meal in the oven. Heaven forbid it's mom in the hospital because the whole house is shutting down then. You're going to live on double R bar burgers and, 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 and chicken sandwiches from Chick-fil-A for three weeks. That's great, too, if you can afford it. But why is it a problem to serve one another? Why is it a problem to get people to serve in the nursery? Why is it a problem to fill up the choir loft? Why is it a problem to get people to serve in Awana, in upward basketball, in Sunday school ministry? Why? Because we have gotten to the point where we say, nope, it's no longer important to serve God. It's no longer, to draw, it's no longer important to draw close to God. It's no longer important uh, what my journey of faith looks like. That's my business. Please stay out of my business. You mind your own P's and Q's. It's no longer important for you to talk about encouraging one another because I'll just encourage myself. Isn't that what David did? He encouraged himself in the Lord. Why do I need to come to God's house to be encouraged? Because God says so. Unfortunately, you say, do you have a better answer than that? No, I don't. (laughs) Because God said so. And remember last week I said, since God says it, that just about settles it. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That means public worship. As the manner of some is. Now that phrase is pretty important because the writer of Hebrews is saying that there were people in his time that had stopped worshiping together. They said, you know what? I'm not going. I'm not going to go and worship. And it goes on, it says, but we're to exhort one another and so much the more. Not doesn't mean that we're to have 50 worship services a week. It means that we're to do it in a greater way. As we see the day approaching. The reason for this exhortation uh, is clear. See, because in that time, maybe somebody somebody, uh, stopped showing up because their feelings had been hurt. I was telling a gentleman this week that there was a time when my wife and I attended Battlefield Baptist Church. And we sat right down there in the third row. And my feelings got hurt. And I decided I was going to do what I thought was best. Now let me just tell real briefly. My wife and I decided we're going to go visit another church. We're going to leave our commitments behind. We're going to uproot the family. We're going to start attending another church out of convenience. I mean, it's it's only five minutes away. We'll actually be home eating lunch. Man, we've been driving 20 and 25 minutes to that crazy Battlefield Baptist Church for years. Man, this will be awesome. We'll only be two minutes from the house. We can get home and we can eat. We can relax. We can do all these things that we want to do. And my wife, if you know my wife, you know she loves her Sunday afternoon nap. And she was really excited. (laughs) Can I tell you? That was not of God. I didn't draw near to God. I wasn't concerned about my journey of faith. 
I wasn't concerned about encouraging people of Battlefield Baptist Church as a regular layperson. I certainly wasn't encouraged about uh, uh, trying to follow what God said about corporate worship. I was selfishly, selfishly looking at what I thought was right. And see, perhaps even in the writer of Hebrews' time, somebody's feelings got hurt. Perhaps they believed they could worship God better on their own. Well, I know more about Scripture than that teacher. I can teach myself better than they can. They've got terrible teachers. And that pastor, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I mean, I wish they would get somebody better. We start to talk ourselves into these things. And those are not biblical, by the way. Those are sinful and those are selfish. And perhaps the writer of Hebrew also knew that there were people who probably left God's house because they felt unloved. Maybe they felt like the members of that church were unfriendly. I'm not going back to that church because I've been attending, I've been visiting that church for six months and nobody ever sits by me. Oh, I know it's getting real quiet. By the way, I'm preaching. I can't sit by everybody. But let me say, if you're the person that's saying, yes, I'm justified. I've been sitting by myself for six months. You also have a responsibility also. You could go out and show yourself friendly to somebody and meet a new friend when you come into the Lord's house. Maybe they felt unloved. Maybe they felt like the church was unfriendly. But God says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as the manner of some is. Just because some do it doesn't make it right. Just because some go to places they shouldn't go doesn't mean I ought to join them. Oh, nobody else except for Linda on that one? I'll pray for you, Linda. All right. Guys, I get serious about God's word, but I also want you to know I'm saying this from a position of love. Truth and love. The writer of Hebrews warns against forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I like what Stephen J. Cole said, and I close the message here. I'm going to share another thing here. He says in 2004, he had an article entitled, Putting Your Position into Practice. He says, invariably, when people drop out of church, their focus is always on themselves, not on God or others. Instead of thinking, how can I be used to spur others on to love, they think my needs are not being met. The church is unfriendly and unloving. He goes on to say, the truth is that you can practice faith and hope when you're alone, but you cannot, you cannot encourage others to love and good deeds when you are alone. You actually have to gather with the saints to do that. You don't provoke me to love and to good works when you stay at home. You don't provoke me to love and good works when you're not here. And certainly it goes likewise. We can't do it. We have to be here together. Listen, Paul told the church at Corinth, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members that of that one body being, memby, mem, being many are one body, he says, so also is Christ. Each one of us, each one of you is a vital part of the body of Christ. And here's the reality. If one part of the body is missing, the other part hurts. Has anybody ever had a hangnail on a big toe? Anybody? 
man, I, I, I guess I'm alone in all these things. Have you ever had such a bad hangnail on a toe? When I was a kid, they actually did surgery on my toenail. It was so bad. They cut a big V in the, in the toenail to get my toenail to start growing right. But I can tell you, even, even in that, I'm looking at one of our young ladies that's had multiple foot surgeries, two of them. When your foot hurts, the rest of your body hurts. You ever step on a little pin or something? I've, I, I remember cleaning out the tornado-stricken uh, area of Joplin, Missouri, when we were out in Missouri. And I took a team, an outreach team, into the area, and we were helping a farmer clear all the debris, and we were making a burn pile. And on the burn pile, it was starting to spread out on the field. And so I told the people, I said, we got to make the pile smaller or the whole field's going to catch on fire because we just got lackadaisical in throwing the wood. And so what do you do? you got a low-level fire. I had to go in the fire and start pulling the lumber back in. And as I did, I stepped on a nail. Well, your natural reaction when you step on a nail is to jump up and as soon as I jumped up I landed you got it on another nail I was like this is not going good I'm like trying to pry my foot and I'm wearing tennis shoes and so there wasn't a great sole on those things and so I pulled my foot off and as I'm walking out of the fire I stepped two more times on nails and the team is seeing this and they're like they're like looking at me wondering if I'm going to be able to continue and they said, bro, sit down, sit down, sit down. And I said, no, no, it'll be all right. Until about five minutes later when I started feeling a lot of wetness in my shoe. And I realized that my foot was covered in blood. And so I sat down on a little stump and I said, well, that's not pretty. Can I tell you the rest of the day, my whole body hurt. My whole body hurt from a few little nails into the bottom of my foot. When the foot is not here, the rest of the body hurts. When the eye is not present, the body hurts. When the ears are not present, when the hands are not present, listen, we're all a part of God's family, and we need to be here. Listen, it's been said that the wisest person is a fool in the sight of God, and the strongest is weak in the moment of temptation. There's no man that can live the Christian life successfully and neglect the fellowship of the church. If a man or woman believes they can do so all alone, let them remember that they are to come to God's house, not just to receive, but to give as well. Each member is to make his or her contributions to the life of the Lord's church a regular part of their life. When you and I make the conscious choice not to attend worship, we're not only hurting ourselves, but we are selfishly cheating others out of the encouragement, the edification, and the exhortation that they need to grow. The exhortation, the edification, and the encouragement that they need to draw closer to God. That they need in their journey of faith. That they need to know that they need to be encouraging others. And when we're not here, that doesn't happen. And Romans 14 tells us this in verse number 7. None of us live to himself, and no man dieth to himself. I think about that early church. And guys, if you'll just put it on the screen, we close and we'll have prayer. I think about that early church an awful, awful lot in Acts chapter 2. You know, they experienced a great measure of success in the ministry there. And certainly we know the Holy Spirit's power was on that church during that time. But I believe there were some other contributing factors that led to the early church's success. And notice what Scripture says in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. It says, and they continued steadfastly, i.e., they were consistent. 
They were consistent in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men and as every man had need. Notice verse 46. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, consistency in their worship, continuing one accord daily in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And notice the results. Praising God and having favor with what people? Not just the people of the church, but all people. You see, they lived their life in such a consistent manner that God not only was blessing the church, as you read the rest, and it says, and the Lord added to the church such as should be saved, but they were having an impact on all the people. You see, because people looked and they said, great regularity, that person goes to worship God with great regularity. When Krista and I lived in Centerville, Virginia, we had a couple that lived across the street from us. And we were very cordial to them, and they were cordial to us. And about six, seven years into our uh, living in that neighborhood, I got home from church one day, and the lady, she came across the street, eyes filled with tears. I literally get out of the car from worship. We had just come home from Battlefield Baptist Church. And she says, will you pray for us? Now, I had invited her to many things at church over the years, but I wasn't real sure what she wanted us to pray, uh, what she wanted my help for. And I said, why would you ask me to pray? And she says, my husband and I have been watching you. A sobering thought. A sobering thought. A scary thought, guys. And they weren't watching us in a creepy way. They had been watching to see if our faith was real. They were watching the consistency of my worship. They were watching the consistency of my service. They were watching the consistency of how I led my family during those years. And she says, my husband and I have been watching you, and we need you to pray for our family. It was then and there, I didn't even know the story, but it was then and there that she revealed to me that they were living actually in the house of their son who had been killed over at the Manassas Raceway. Years ago, when his car flipped on him in a drag race. And they reached out to me. Let me tell you, it's pretty important that we be consistent in drawing close to God. Because if you're not, you're going to have nothing to give that person in that moment. If you're not consistently living your life of faith before the world, they're not going to care what you have because they're going to look through you and they're going to say, man, that person says one thing, but they live a different way. It's incredibly important that we encourage one another. We all need encouragement. Whether you're sitting here and you say you don't need it or not, you need it. And guys, I hate to pick on us, but we're the first ones to say we don't need encouragement. I'm a man. I don't need no encouragement. I don't need to draw together in fervent love. What's that all about? (laughs) And you want to know why we're in trouble. And you want to know why your family's in trouble. You want to know why the church is in trouble today. You want to know why our community's in trouble and this nation and this world's in trouble. Because we've gotten so prideful that we've dismissed God's word and decided that our word is better. 
And then it is incredibly important, whether you believe me or not, whether you think this is some kind of membership or, or attendance campaign or not, it's important, it's incredibly important that you be consistent in your corporate worship. Not for me, because if it's just my wife and my son and a little squirrel, I'm going to preach. Until the squirrel, my wife and my son say, we've had enough. So it's not for me, guys, it's for you. It is for you, it's for one another, it's for the church, it's for this world that is dying and going to hell without Jesus. We have to be consistent. And I pray this morning, you say, I can't even be consistent because I've never even gotten in the game. What I'm talking about the game is no game. It's the reality that if you've never called out upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, if you've never repented of your sins and said, you know what, I need a forgiveness of these sins that are plaguing me, that are burdening my heart. If you've never asked Jesus to forgive you, I'm begging you today, call out on his name. He's the only one that will willingly, graciously, and mercifully forgive your sins. And you know what, he doesn't bring them back up next week to remind you of them. Call out on the name of the Lord and be saved. You need encouragement, man. Find somebody to come and pray with. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about our ministry, please go to battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. See you next time.